Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Ph.D. Dr. Michael Hicks, an economist who has some great insights into not-for-profit hospitals. But Tom, we're going to talk about hospitals a little bit to get you know get the crowd warmed up. Exactly, for and Dr. we Hicks. have just the person to do that because in a previous life, and no, we don't believe in reincarnation here. But in a previous life, Dr. Chris Stroud was a hospital executive, so we are going to pick his formidable brain to see what falls out regarding not-for-profit hospitals. Let's just hope no one's disappointed with what they find <laughs> during the picking. So, the, uh, tell us about the hospital that you worked at as an executive. Yeah, I, I've worked for a couple of hospitals. The last hospital that I worked for as a uh, as a healthcare administrator was um, called the Aurora Health System, and uh, all along eastern Wisconsin. And now they've actually merged with another huge hospital system in Chicago, which is probably a topic that we can go over with our guests: the consolidation of these big yes. not-for-profit hospital systems. Uh, but I spent uh, all in all about seven years of my career as a hospital executive. Uh, got really tired of that and decided to come back to practice. And that was uh, next to finding my wife, one of the greatest decisions <laughs> I ever made. So there are three categories of hospitals, uh, which will fall into the trivia question later. Hmm. But the three categories, I've worked in one of them, and that is government-owned, so uh, in the military. Military, VA. And, and yeah. VA, uh, worked in those. And then, of course, there's not-for-profit, NFP, not natural family planning right now. It's standing for NFP for this show. Which is confusing. Which is confusing, especially with Chris, the NFP-only ob guy <laughs> on the show. And then there are FPs, not to be confused with family physicians, but for-profit hospitals. You know, in, in, in the interest of vocabulary, we should say it, it's perfectly appropriate to say not-for-profit or non-profit. Mm -hmm. Everybody means the same thing. Exactly. I didn't really understand... Now, there was such a thing as a, a for-profit and not-for-profit hospital, and we can talk about the ethics maybe at some point. Should hospitals make a profit for shareholders off of health care? Yeah, but this designation really has to do with how the IRS sees a business. Right. So the tax status for each of these two types of hospitals, what's what's the difference, Chris? Yeah, so a non-profit or a not-for-profit um, doesn't mean that it isn't profitable. That's the tricky part, isn't it? Right, it has it, to be. It means to they're registered as a charity or a charitable organization with the IRS. And as a result, they're exempt from many of the taxes, both federal, state, and local, that most businesses would pay. So are they like a 501c3? Yes. Uh, wow. They, yeah, they, they are a charitable organization. They can receive donations from you and from me and others. And those donations that we make to a nonprofit hospital are themselves tax, tax deductible, deductible for us. That's right. So a for-profit pays all the taxes. Non-for-profit, do they pay any taxes? They don't pay federal. They don't pay state and local taxes. They don't pay sales tax or property taxes generally. It can vary somewhat by community uh, on some of the local matters and how those are dealt with. Okay. But for the most part, I'm sure we have some accountants listening that will correct my mistakes, but for the most part, the non-for-profit hospitals do not have a tax So burden. even in their gift shop, you don't, you're not paying sales tax? That's where it gets a little tricky because a lot of non-profit hospitals have uh, for-profit components to them. Maybe it's a gift shop. Maybe it's a food service. Uh, maybe it's a home nursing business. Very good. So it can get very confusing. So why does the government give some hospitals this status? What is it that they're providing for us human beings in the community that the for-profit are not? Yeah, again, I'm sure an accountant would critique my answer, but if you think of any not-for-profit organization, uh, whether it's United Way or any, any other sure. that you're familiar with, the government is granting them an exemption from taxes in return for a societal good. Right. You don't pay taxes, you pay in kind, you might say. Uh, and so the same is true with hospitals. They're saying, look, hospital, we're going to exempt you from this tax burden. As a result, you're going to do all sorts of good as a method of paying society back for that exemption. So uh, one of these goods is what? 
paying for patients who have no insurance. Yeah, if we think about for-profits, they're required to provide what we would call stabilizing care. Mm-hmm. So if a patient presents at a for-profit hospital's emergency room, doesn't have health insurance, doesn't have the ability to pay, that for-profit hospital still has to assess them, stabilize them, and then they're allowed to transfer them to another environment. A nonprofit hospital has an obligation to care and for care that's uncompensated. They have an obligation to deliver that care that's uncompensated. Is there a difference between the type of uh, uh, benefits to patients that would be offered, services between a for-profit and nonprofit hospital? Yeah, I think we could make some pretty sweeping generalizations. And of course, listeners could find exceptions. But if we looked across the country, uh, we would find in in many cases on the for-profit side, um, they may tend towards more profitable services at the expense maybe of some of the less profitable services. Think about trauma care. Mm-hmm. Very expensive, uh, very little reimbursement and compensation to the institution, uh, but necessary to society. As on the other hand, on the not-for-profit side, they should offer a wide variety of services that are needed by the community, really without as much regard to the profitability of a given service. Is that going on? You know, and that I think we'll get a chance to talk to our guests a lot about. Good question. I think some of these truisms that we're going through now maybe aren't quite as as true as they have been in years, decades past. So I would suspect then, based on what you said, that the non-profit hospitals would probably be in the poor neighborhoods where people don't have the ability to pay. Yeah, it's not very it's not very intuitive there, but what you see if you look across the country is oddly enough the pro- for-profit hospitals tend to be located in some of the lower economic So the opposite um, of what the we opposite think. Of, of what you would expect, oddly enough. Do you have any idea what accounts for that? Uh, I don't. I'll be interested to know if Dr. Hicks has found something in his research. I suspect it may have something to do with not-for-profits trying to limit maybe their exposure uh, to some of the less profitable care. I would then suspect that for-profit hospitals probably charge more. Yeah. Charging is one of the most fascinating things, and we're going to get into that, I know, because I've read uh, Dr. Hicks' recent article. This idea of trying to understand hospital charges is next to impossible. It's easier to understand the crossword in the New York Times uh, (laughs) than it is charges at hospitals because no one actually pays what the hospital charges. Exactly. Except those who are paying that are self-pay. So if you don't have insurance, then you actually pay the amount. You pay more than anybody else is paying. You pay the sticker price. But all of the insurance companies have negotiated rates off the sticker price. So it can be very, very complicated. Oh, my goodness. So when these hospitals are raising money to expand or do something, where do they get their money? That's a big difference between these two kinds of businesses. So on the for-profit side, they're going to go to the market. They're going to go to investors who want to invest in the company that owns the hospital, or maybe they want to be direct investors in the hospital. Uh, In some cases, you and I know of examples where there are physicians who are part owners of hospitals. Uh, On the not-for-profit side, They look to donations, to charitable donations. But what's really remarkable is the not-for-profits have access to the bond market. So they can raise um, uh, incredible amounts of capital by going to the municipal bond market, which is a very inexpensive, effective way to raise capital. So their cost of capital, in many cases, can be a fraction of that of the for-profit side. Now, if I'm a patient and I don't know which kind of hospital I'm in, Am I going to receive a different level of care? I think most of the data would say no, that uh, it isn't recognizable. If you were lying in in one of the hospital rooms as a patient, you would have to look at some of these things that we're discussing uh, to try to understand that. But today, the hospitals look very similarly. So both hospitals are turning a, quote, profit, even the nonprofits. They have, in other words, they have money above and beyond operating expenses. Yes, they may have money that comes in. They pay all their expenses. And hopefully, like with our families, there's a little bit of money left. And where does that money go for each hospital type? Yeah, now that's a big difference between the two. So on the for-profit side, if there's money left over after the expenses, much of that, if not all of that, is owed to the investors. They want a return on their investment. investment. Maybe that's a form of a dividend payment or just appreciation in the stock value. 
on the not-for-profit side. They don't have investors. Uh, so any extra funds that are left over get reinvested in the institution itself to do more services, to buy more equipment, to hire more people. But I think one of the things Dr. Hicks discovered is that is not happening. Yeah, I think he's going to enlighten us with that. You know, there are examples of uh, what some might call exorbitant um, chief executive officer compensation on the not-for-profit side, and one wonders, was there so much money left over that they can highly compensate executives where that's not necessarily the case on the for-profit Plus, it's not necessarily going back to the local community like supposedly they have agreed to do for their charitable status. So governance, who runs these hospitals? Yes, so a for-profit hospital is going to be run like any for-profit business that we could go look up on the stock exchange, right, or or even a privately held company. They're going to have a board of directors uh, with a chief executive officer, as you would expect. The not-for-profit hospitals, they're locally owned uh, because they're, they're owned by the people who grant them the right to not pay taxes. So that's typically going to be either a, a maybe a county hospital board or a local board of trustees or a board of directors. So what is done with the extra income from these two hospitals? Is it greatly different these days? Well, I think Dr. Hicks is going to is going to have an opinion on that. I think it's pretty interesting. In my research and just in my experience, I don't think it's very consistent across the board. Um, you know, we can certainly find not-for-profit health systems that look very rich, that yes. spend more on landscaping than an entire for-profit hospital does. But we can also see examples on the for-profit side where it, it seems to be they're spending money uh, very rapidly and maybe lavishly as well. So I wonder if the question is maybe there's not a consistent answer. And then finally, are there ways that these two operate that are significantly different from each other? Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that on the for-profit side, they tend to be a little more lean and mean uh, with faster more uh, at-the-level-of-services decision-making. The not-for-profit systems are going to tend to move a little more slowly, maybe a little more academically uh, or uh, methodologically. And they won't buy new technology as quickly as the for-profit hospitals. Presumably. That's the sensation that I think most people get, or the sense, I should say, that most people get. Whether that's correct or not, we'll have to delve into. Well, and finally, that medical trivia question of the day that I alluded to is a simple question. And I'll give you actually a two-parter. The first part is, first, how many hospitals are there in the United States? And this is as of 2017 data. And finally, of those hospitals, what percent fall into each of the three groups? Group A, state-owned or government. Uh, Group B, nonprofit and Group C for profit. We'll be back with our guest, Dr. Michael Hicks, here on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to our special guest today, who is Dr. Michael Hicks. Uh, Michael is an economist, the George and Francis Ball Distinguished Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University. He's a retired Army colonel, And his research has been reported in many places, including The Economist, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Washington Post, on the radio with National Public Radio, and on CNN Television. Michael Hicks, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Oh, it's uh, good to be with you guys. Hey, you know, finally, this is our 96th weekly episode, and you are the first economist to grace the airwaves with us. We're excited about that, but... My understanding, or my my understanding, used to be that economists only dealt with money issues, but there's really more to what economists do, isn't there? Especially something regarding how we human beings irrationally make decisions? Uh, Yeah, I would say economists are mostly interested in trying to understand uh, how human beings interact in that most inelegant of places, the the marketplace, whether it be who does the dishes at home, to international trade. So it's not really a, I'm not a financial manager uh, here at my research center. Most of us worry about what causes economic activity to occur in the places that it occurs, what causes wages to vary by levels of education, those sorts of issues, not the traditional uh, investment advising that many people think we do. Okay, very good. So 
at your Center for Business and Economic, economic <laughs> Research at Ball State, you released on sept- September 25th uh, a report that's garnered a lot of regional and national attention. The, the short title is basically, Indiana Has a Monopoly Problem in Healthcare. Why did you even research this and release it? We'll probably get into it later in the chat. Uh, last spring, the RAND Corporation released a study that identified uh, a very costly healthcare um, expenditures here in Indiana. They found that, for example, the Fort Wayne area where you guys are chatting out of is among the highest in the country. And as a consequence of that, there were a number of people over the summer said, yeah, you should really look into this you know, potential monopolization. What does this do to the economy? How, how does this affect business location and household spending in the state? And so I, I finally did so in early August, late July time frame. And then it just sort of uh, rolled forward because the findings were so so shocking. You know, Michael, I walked into the surgeon's lounge one day and saw five or six surgeons gathering in front of the bulletin board, and they were looking at your article. And uh, that's not something I don't, I don't <laughs> think I'd seen before. So I elbowed my way in there to see what they were reading uh, and then really enjoyed reading your article. But you, you've captured a lot of people's attention. And, you know, uh, sure, Indiana may have something interesting going on, but why is this topic or this issue, if you will, why is it relevant nationally? Well, you know, we're 50 states that all have very similar healthcare systems, markets in them. Uh, they're described by everyone who participates in it as inordinately complex. I don't really think they are, um, you know, relative to the pricing of other services and, and goods that we consume. But they're very difficult to learn about. So they're more, they're far less transparent yes. or more difficult to get a good price for these things. And uh, there are advantages that one actor might be able to, uh, you know, one group, a, a patient that doesn't pay or, uh, you know, in some places it may be a, a great deal of monopolization in the insurance market. There may be places where there is an abundance of federally subsidized Medicare or Medicaid patients that distort markets there because Medicare and Medicaid doesn't really pay for all the services. And so almost every part of the country is going to have some sort of different uh, difficulty. If you're in Alaska, it's hard to get docs to live in parts of Alaska. So their prices are really high. If you're in, uh, you know, western Texas, it's hard to get docs to move to some rural counties that have three or 400 people in them. There's a couple actually like that. So uh, this issue of healthcare costs, which is consuming Close to one out of every five dollars that wow. we produce each year mm. is a big deal everywhere. Now, you commented that this is one of the most shocking things you've seen in your decades of public policy research. Help, uh, help us and our listeners understand what's really shocking about this data and this study. Well, recall my study is about not-for-profit health care providers, really hospitals and hospital systems. Uh, the systems involved are not just hospitals, but outpatient services, medical practices, uh, you know, visiting nurses, those sorts of things that, that several large not-for-profit hospitals here in Indiana have. And Indiana, like some northeastern states and midwestern states, is dominated by these not-for-profit hospitals, which, as their name suggests, you would think are not-for-profit. They're going to make a little bit extra money and plow back into maybe hiring more people or improving the physical uh, outcomes or the, the, the facilities that they have or buying new diagnostic equipment. But they're not going to be squirreling away money, for lack of a better word, on Wall Street to construct a, a, you know, a large apparatus that will keep out potential competitors. They're not going to be doing things that would you know, clearly be anti-competitive that would keep a for-profit provider or another not-for-profit provider from moving into a market. But yet that is exactly what we observe in Indiana. There's, you know, a host of anti-competitive practices, something between 15 and $30 billion in profits that are uh, in, you know, not invested in Indiana. They're invested in hedge funds and money market accounts. Um, and, and, and to put that in context so that, you know, when, when an economist starts talking about, um, you know, um, you know, billions and billions of dollars, 
Indiana has the largest proportional rainy day fund in America right now, second largest wow. state government's rainy day fund. It's $2.3 billion. So IU Health, right, has $5 billion. So IU Health, <laughs> the Indiana University not-for-profit health, has twice the reserves that the entire government of Indiana possesses. So why so, did the and, state and then, of Indiana give IU Health and other not-for-profits this beneficial status? Aren't they supposed to be using this money to help the local people? Well, that is, I mean, is the undercurrent of all of this is that we have observed really since about 2010, which was, you know, it's hard to know that if it was the Affordable Care Act or just uh, emerging from the Great Recession, that hospital practices around the country started becoming more concentrated. So researchers at the national level are documenting, you know, thousands of mergers over the past decade and a half that are appear to be anti-competitive, create local monopolies that make it very difficult for consumers to, to you know, search for elective surgery uh, or, or just go to different providers. And so the idea behind a not-for-profit hospital was that they would be guided by the uh, community benefits model, which was part of the Affordable Care Act. They wouldn't be guided by profits. Profits aren't an ugly thing, but there are places where healthcare may not be profitable and so that you would not be able to track private equity. So it'd be better to have a community setting prices and um, doing those sorts of things. And so when we see these behemoth companies, you know, multi-billion dollar companies uh, making profits that are, you know, uh, 20, 30 percent, as I indicated in my study, which by the way, for that year, are like four or five times the profit rate of Anthem, which is the lar- largest private for-profit insurance company in Indiana. So when people start to indict a insurance company for high profits, it's really been the hospitals here in Indiana. And I think that's an unusual circumstance in Indiana, although there are other states that face the problem I as well. I think you point out very nicely that, you know, the, the big business companies that have been around for decades and are healthy, like Walmart makes 3 to 4% profit a year, but you were pointing out some of these hospitals are making 20 to 30 to 50% profit. So... You know, we talk about profits being necessary, but what level of profit is necessary? What's reasonable? Right. And so what economists would say is that the more risky your industry, the higher the profit should be. So if I'm going to be drilling for oil in Indiana, I ought to be expecting 20%, 15% for that because oil prices come and go. Um, I don't know where the oil is all the time, so I'm taking some risk. Yes. So you ought to get pretty good profit to compensate you for that risk. Something like Walmart is a fairly low-risk operation. People eat, they buy underwear through a recession, (laughs) and so uh, they tend to be fairly stable. Gosh, the most stable industry in the United States over the past century have been hospitals. This is is a place where you should anticipate, based on that typical metric, a 3% profit, right? So, and I chronicled several of, of those that, uh, in, in my study that had been in the big networks you are having profits at, you know, 15, 18, 20, 23, 26 percent, no matter how you measure them, right, that these profits are just uh, astonished the, the census. And we know that this has been going on a long time because I just pick on IU Health that's poised to make a billion dollars this year, a billion dollars this year in Indiana. Right. That's about, you know, one sixth. Their profit is about one sixth of everything that we spend on education in the state of Indiana. It's just an enormous scale of of profitability for this company. Now, Michael, when I was uh, in the hospital administration world, you know, they would talk about a three or a five percent margin. Um, If we had uh, the CEO of IU Health on opposite you, would he or she say, Actually, no, that billion dollars is not profit. You're mischaracterizing it. It's something else. Is this an accounting problem and a vocabulary problem, um, or, or is it something completely different? Oh, no. It's, it's, it, it, so an accountant will say no nonprofit has a, has a profit, right? And so we know that we've exited the accounting world when we're talking about profits hmm. in nonprofits. What we're really talking about is just pure revenue over cost. Yeah. 
And that's what economists would call a profit. And profit exists in the private sector to reward people who invest in your company. Um, it, it goes back to shareholders. It goes to the people who are, you know, the clever business leaders. In, in hospitals, the money just gets squirreled away. And so, like I said, $4.7 billion at IU Health, you know, it, more than, you know, four or five years worth of operating uh, payment by patients is sitting in Wall Street. And so the, the data that I used comes directly from the IRS 990 forms, which are obligated to be filed by every 501c3 corporation in America above a certain size to ensure that they're complying with the nonprofit statutes that exist at both the federal and state level. So if they're if they are going to amend their IRS 990s, I would amend my study. The fact of the matter is, you either have to believe that IU president that these aren't profits, or you have to, what they tell you, what they tell the newspaper, or you have to believe what they are telling the Internal Revenue Service. But you can't believe both of them. Uh, uh, I know where I'm going to choose. That's a choice for each of us to make. Now, Tom and I live in Indiana, and you live in Indiana. Frankly, I don't see why anybody would live anywhere else. <laughs> um, but w- is there something unique about Indiana, our industry, our culture, or what is it that's making Indiana such a profitable place to be a not-for-profit hospital? Right. That's the, the great puzzle. Um, the RAND study, another study by what's called the Healthcare Cost Institute, which is a think tank in in, in uh, Washington, D.C., both um, have done some pricing work and what we call concentration work. So economists know that uh, the, the more concentrated you are, the more monopolized the market is, the higher the prices are going to be. I think most Americans get that as an intuitive sense. Um, uh, but it, here in Indiana, a couple of things, the, the hospital association or, uh, you know, a, a health researcher, and again, I publish a number of studies in, the, in these areas, but say what, you know, there are things in Indiana that should make the prices higher and there should things that should make the prices lower. We're a little bit less healthy. We're a little bit older than the average American. We make less money. Um, we have a larger rural population. Those things would cause you know, prices to, to, to be lower. We um, have a large share of adults covered by employee-based health insurance that should drive down costs. We have a good Medicaid expansion, a big Medicaid expansion. I'm not not sure good's the right term for it, but a large <laughs> Medicaid expansion with HIP 2.0. Um, and so all of these things, you know, we have more coverage. We have compact rural places that are accessible. And so if, if you just look at our costs, the expenditure per Hoosier, Back 20 years ago, before there was a lot of market concentration in hospitals, we were paying about $330 less than the average American, which is, I think, about the right place, given all of these other uh, health conditions and everything else. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm publishing a study on this in the next few weeks that will say this. And then between 1997 to 2007, last year that I have ex- consumer expenditure data, our per capita spending went from $330 below the average American to $819 above the average American. So obviously, so health care or health um, status of Hoosiers must be going up. We must be getting healthier since we're spending more, right? Right, you would think so. It's it's it, it, the our our health rankings are dropping a little bit. Now I don't know if that's causal. Um, I don't know if it's just an access issue, but we haven't dropped a lot. I mean, relative to the rest of the country, Hoosiers are just a little bit below where they were before. We, we're not. There's been nothing dramatic in the country that over 20 years would cause Indiana to, to you know, plummet in health care. We're a little bit younger than the average American. You know, we, we make a little bit less, and, you know, uh, income tends to drive a lot of these in the big cross-national studies. And so there's nothing that would say we should be spending $1,100 more per person in inflation-adjusted dollars than we did 20 years ago, and that we should be going from below the national average to well above the national average in the top two or three. Um, There's nothing that would suggest that would be the case. It has to be, you have to appeal to something that's happening in the state. And then, and that is where we see a, a great deal of mergers that have been ignored by successive ways of attorney generals. That is where you observe what are termed in the academic literature is anti-competitive practices, also the antitrust literature, uh, things like buying up doctors, limiting, uh, admitting pr- uh, privileges, closing, buying some hospitals and then uh, closing them down, buying uh, medical providers and then 
closing them down so that you restrict the flow and the uh, admissions into your hospital that gives you power, market power over uh, both the insurers and patients and local employers. Michael, we're going to take you're, a you're break right now, and we're going to dive more into this right here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Redeemer Radio and Dr. Doctor with our special guest, Dr. Michael Hicks, an economist. Uh, Michael, just before the break, we were talking, and uh, there have been editorials that have suggested that maybe this research you've published is biased, and, and you really are, maybe you're politically motivated, and as a result, your data is uh, skewed. How would you respond to that? Well, um, to be clear, I the, the data that I use in this study comes from audited financial statements, the Internal Revenue Service, the American Hospital Association, uh, the typical sources that one would use for these data. So they're not there's nothing out here that's not available and anybody who wants to pick it up. I don't if the data is skewed, it's skewed by the accountants who reported it from the hospitals. I didn't I don't do things for political purposes. I do them for policy purposes. So I do have a policy interest here. It's not a it's not a political one. I don't know that there's a strong constituency for high medical care costs anywhere in America. <laughs> um, and, and maybe maybe the hospital association knows something that I don't. But you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, I have thick skin when you do public policy research and you tell people things that that, that ha- are going to take away a very profitable, potentially take away a very profitable enterprise, very lucrative. Mm. opportunities uh, for the CEOs and the lobbyists, of course, they're going to fight back. And that's all this is. You know, I remember, uh, it's been a long time now, maybe a decade or more, when Senator Grassley, I believe from Iowa, uh, was pretty publicly going after some not-for-profit status of certain uh, organizations. But in listening to the data that you present, it it seems intuitive that that this isn't right somehow and that they, the powers that be, in this case, I guess the IRS, would be questioning um, the, the not-for-profit status of some of these very profitable companies. Is that happening, or have we just gotten very, very slack on enforcing that, uh, that community benefit component? Yeah, I think there's uh, two, two things going on here. I do think that there is growing recognition, not just from this study, but others, that this community benefit component of the nonprofit status is being widely ignored in healthcare, and, and, and let me be clear: most hospitals in Indiana, most companies in Indiana, look to me like they're meeting this component. So, you know, Eskenazi, uh, you know, I could name a bunch of them that are making you know reasonably small profits and, and doing the right thing. It's really four, maybe five large hospital systems in Indiana that are you know, have, have pulled 9% of the state's economy out in profits that are that are doing this. The other ones really are, are small players doing the right thing, as far as I can tell. Uh, but I do think that there are uh, folks around the country that are looking at this, and I feel pretty confident that now folks within Indiana and in the legal framework who are responsible for adjudicating the community benefit are going to be looking very closely at what may be going on. Not just that portion of it, but I think antitrust laws have... Uh, and which I make very clear have been uh, violated in in a number of instances and are going to be examined very closely, both by criminal and civil uh, investigators. But Michael, at the end of the day, who who's the boss? Is it the IRS? So is it the federal side, or is it the state legislatures that have the say in their status? Both do. If you're a provider mm-hmm. that extends across a state border, the federal government has unambiguous authority mm-hmm. over you. So that would be like a, an Ascension or a St. Vincent. Mm-hmm. If you are a provider within a state, um, and then it is typically deferred to state government. But um, it, it could certainly be, be both in this instance because they're both state and federal not-for-profit statutes that apply to all of these hospitals. So there's at least two legal avenues of remedy. Michael, has the distinction between for-profit and non-profit hospitals lost its meaning and purpose? Oh, yes. I mean, you would never, as a for-profit hospital, be running a 20-25% profit. The reason is you'd be wanting to be returning some of that to investors. You'd be wanting to be competing in other markets. The largest hospital uh, company in America, the Hospital Corporation of America, it's based out of Nashville. 
they would look at, at say, um, Fort Wayne and say, oh, my gosh, I've got to get into that. Look how profitable that market is. I need to open up a hospital. I need to, you know, to, to find physicians and nurses in that area to provide services. It's profitable. My stockholders would like me to do that. Um, but there's no way they're going to do that with Parkview sitting on a billion dollars in Wall Street. I mean, Parkview doesn't have to charge its patients anything for a couple of years before it starts running into financial problems. And that alone is going to prevent competition. That's an anti-competitive practice so right there. So did the Indiana legislature make it easy to set up these monopolies? I'm not sure the legislature did. I think probably what has really happened was, in the wake of, this is my gut feeling, not my analytical conclusion yet, is that in the wake of the uh, Affordable Care Act, a number of hospitals said, look, it's going to get really tough for us out there. We're going to have real problems with uh, Medicaid, Medicare, and, and, you know, we need to merge for efficiency reasons, which is the argument that every merger undertakes. (laughs) And the... the, uh, Hospitals that would not have met the federal antitrust merger guidelines, which have been established for a century almost, would um, would were allowed to merge. And so hospitals that would never have been allowed to merge if they were across state borders or reviewed by the federal government uh. were allowed to merge because I think people were concerned that the Affordable Care Act would be more disruptive than it was. And so at the end of the day, what happened was we just put more money into Medicaid, We've made big reimbursements, and so hospitals uh, emerged in about 2010 or 11 um, in a really good position to exploit these uh, monopoly opportunities. And I think that's where they get the big, you know, money that they're holding in Wall Street. And and, and that those um, those funds are held. Uh, we worry about them for anti-competitive purposes. They plow some of the money back into their operations, which is why they have such huge, beautiful. Uh, hospitals, but I think the original question does for profit, not for profit, make it make sense here. I actually think our problem is in not for profit, not for profit. There you know, are, it, it's, there it, are market disciplines in for profit hospitals. It's funny you would say that. I, I live in both worlds, so I, I'm a practicing OBGYN, and I live in both a profit, for profit, and a not for profit hospital. And it's funny; it feels like the the truisms have broken down because when I'm in the for profit hospital. I see cosmetic problems that aren't getting fixed and and bad equipment and the stretchers are squeaky and things like that. And I think, you know, harumph, harumph, they're sending all the money back to the stockholders. That's the problem. And then I go to the not-for-profit side and I see, uh, you know, marble floors and uh, beautiful uh, landscaping and things like this. And I think, ah, if they only had to pay investors, they wouldn't spend that money. (laughs) So, uh, you, you know, I won't let either one be themselves, but maybe that's the problem, isn't it? We're seeing both ends of the spectrum are kind of broken, um, and we've drifted too far to the poles almost. Well, right, and in the market that you see, you have a for-profit hospital uh, uh, competing with a not-for-profit, and it's very difficult to do that And when you're paying much higher taxes as a for-profit hospital. Mm, sure. So that's, that is really the challenge. So, Michael, a common topic on our show this last year has been, you know, the, the ethics and the effects of a Medicare for All coming to pass. How does what you are demonstrating play into the hands of those who would be in favor of Medicare for All? Right, that's a good question. It's good for me to share with your listeners that I'd be, I'm very worried about a Medicare for All package of, that would cause the rationing of healthcare and decisions to go away from families and physicians um, to um, you know other entities who are much less equipped to make those decisions. So I'm, I'm nervous about it. But this plays, as you asked, plays precisely into their um, the argument. And so here we are in Indiana with a supermajority in both the House and Senate of Republicans. We have a Republican governor, um, and uh, we have a huge not-for-profit hospital networks that have run amok and are causing us to be amongst the most expensive places in the state to receive health care. And if we can't fix it, if a place like this can't fix it, why on earth would anybody trust a national Republicans to fix it? I mean, it is that simple that the challenge here is minimal compared to a national problem. And so if, if this is the best, our, uh, uh, an inability to handle this now that everybody is well aware of it is easily the, 
strongest argument for uh, uh, a single-payer system out there, and I think that's why the urgency of this needs to be addressed right now. That is a great point. I'm curious, what kind of feedback have you gotten from um, hospital CEOs on your study? Uh, I'll ask the question differently. Well, I mean, Are you afraid to start your car at night? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I have a uh, medical tag that says, uh, uh, you know, transport me to Ohio. Um, <laughs> the, and, and that's not fair because, like I, I pointed out, there's so many, you know, very robust hospitals yes. that are doing the right thing here mm-hmm. that, you know, it, that's not a problem. The, the um, um, uh the, I've had two types of, of uh, overwhelming response. I've had uh, more positive response about this than any single column or study that I have, have authored. Mm. Um, and I've been doing in this business for 25 years. I've been writing a column for uh, 12 years, a weekly column. And so this has been an overwhelming support. I continue to get emails and notes every doggone day over to the positive. Hospitals are rightfully very nervous and unhappy about it. They got called on it. It wasn't just me. It was me. It was the RAND Corporation. It was the Healthcare Cost Institute, a group of economists in Washington, D.C. have all said similar things. The legislators that uh, who uh, have largely ignored hospital expansion and mergers over previous years now understand that this is an urgent problem. It's going to be the number one issue, I think, in the General Assembly this year. Oh. And there are more studies coming out. So, um, yeah, I'm sure they're very unhappy. But, but you know, as I indicated, the, some of the behaviors here skirt what would be uh, a classic antitrust. The, uh, and I mentioned earlier the uh, one of my columns I wrote, you know, Gilded Age. So yes. the, the, example of the, the, the example of the Gilded Age that we see here was uh, the Standard Oil. Right. There's yes. a famous antitrust case in 1911 by Standard Oil, which then uh, Attorney General Taft uh, crafted what he called the rule of reason, which is the antitrust standard that if you're doing things that cause prices to be higher because there's few of you, um, then that is an illegal activity. And it was later codified into, into law, expanding these practices. And this is what they did. They, the Standard Oil would buy other oil producers. It would buy oil, you know, derricks and individual oil drilling rigs, and then close them down, Mm. right? That's called upstream foreclosure. So if you've been in Indiana, if you've been in a hospital area, if you've had your physician bought out by a hospital chain, and there used to be four physicians there, but now there's only two, and then maybe one of the other physicians in the area left, probably because he or she lost their admitting privileges, that is exactly out of the 1911 U.S. v. Standard Oil uh, litigation and antitrust. Mm. So technically, you know, that's a, that's a technical talk. This is Gilded Age. This is the, you know, Downton Abbey uh, time frame we're talking about um, in terms of the profit rate. So it, uh, the Rockefeller family would not, they didn't, they were not running 25% profits. They were running like 12 to 15% mm. profits. This is Gilded Age stuff. And, and, so, I, you know, I hate getting into personalities with this, but if you look at the compensation, if you look at the physical uh, infrastructure at many of these hospitals, as you pointed out, it is it stuns the senses where these revenues are going. They're not going into smoking cessation or opioid treatment. They're going into marble facades and, and other things that I think are clearly not part of the public benefit standard of, of legislation in either in Indiana so or Michael, the U.S. So, Michael, in our last three minutes, you've got three points that you think should be uh, put into action, what are your action items and what can listeners do to help them come to pass? Well, the first thing you got to do is call your legislator, write your legislator. I'm talking about your state legislators here in Indiana, but I'm sure the, your senators and congressmen would like to hear it too. First thing is we've got to prohibit the anti-competitive practices. You can't buy up doctor's offices. You can't buy up competing practices. And if you've done that, you're going to have to spin them back off. That's problem one. There's a lot of little things that go into that as well. The second thing is you're going to have to tax the not-for-profit hospitals at a rate that's equivalent to what for-profit hospitals are paying to take away that competitive advantage so that for-profit hospitals could come in and compete 
competition causes prices to drop. And then the third thing that needs to be done is there needs to be a separation of control from their accrued profits. They have somewhere between 15 and $30 billion tucked away on Wall Street. That money has to be uh, not taken away from hospitals, but separated from the board of the hospital so that they don't have operational control that would keep that, uh, you'd be able to use that money to keep out competitors. And so those three things happen. I think we're going to be in a much better place. We're going to be saving $1,500 per person per year in healthcare within the next two or three years. And we'll have a healthcare system here of hospitals that are meeting the public benefit standard that we gave them. We taxpayers gave them as part of their public, their not-for-profit status. How are legislators responding to this? Uh, very positively so far. I mean, there are, I'm going to be honest, there's a couple of legislators out there that have been carrying water for hospitals in Indiana for a number of years, and I know they're pretty unhappy, uh, and I suspect they've shared that distaste with my uh, university. I'm tenured and I'm worried about that, <laughs> but I've talked with, uh, it's one of the values of tenure, and, and but I've talked to literally dozens of legislators and legislative staffs over the past 30 days look, something's going to happen in Indiana. The question is, how strong are the hospitals going to be able to be to to mute this? Because they're they're losing the most profitable industry in the state. Do you think that other states will be looking to see what happens here on this topic? Well, not only will other states, oh, absolutely. Not only will other states be looking at this, but, uh, but again, we're entering a presidential uh, election cycle. If anybody's not aware of it now, and if, if you want to, if you if you're blissfully, unfortunately, unaware of it now, if you want to call out the, if you're a Democrat and you're pushing for an expansion of Medicare, uh, Medicaid expansion, of uh, sort of advantage plan, something like that, that would be essentially nationalized health care. If Indiana doesn't get it right, this is your. Uh, evidence that the, is, the Republicans are unserious about health care reform. And because this is a problem. If you can't fix this in Indiana, you can't imagine turning it over to Anywhere Congress else. to remedy. Michael Hicks, Economist Ball State, thank you so much for being here and enlightening our visitors on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And it is time once again for the answer to my friend Tom's trivia question, which is harder than I hope this well above average in difficulty. <laughs> well, the first part of the question, how many hospitals are there in the United States? I had no idea how many there were, but there seemed to be about 110 per state or 5,564 hospitals across the country. Now, the most important part of the question is we've been talking about for-profit nonprofit hospitals. And there's also a third category, state or government-owned hospitals. So it roughly breaks down in a one to three to one ratio. 20% are government-owned, like like Army hospitals, county hospitals, VA hospitals. 60% roughly are nonprofit, and only 20% are for-profit, which surprised me. Yeah, you would have thought it might have been closer to 50-50, just intuitively. Right. Um, Um, But that's certainly not the case. But it's not. So, Chris, after your, you know, years in uh, non-for-profit hospital management, what were your big takeaways from Michael? You know, it's interesting. I... um, He's right. I think, you know, we can look around and the data is the data, uh, but it doesn't necessarily make it easier to figure out what's wrong, does it? I mean, uh, I could see the problems on the for-profit side of not reinvesting into infrastructure and things properly and only focusing on dividend satisfaction, you might say, or investor satisfaction. But then uh, to the extreme on the not-for-profit side, we can see exorbitant facilities and really sort of wasted, you know, money on cosmetics and you know, administrative compensation and things like that, equal evils on different sides, maybe of a similar coin. Uh, but that, in my mind, doesn't make it any easier to get to the solution. I think the thing that he, he said that struck me the hardest was this idea, if Indiana can't get it right, no one can get it right. And uh, as a small business owner like you, I, I'm so frustrated with every year the health insurance cost for my employees going up to the yes. point that I can't afford it to provide it. They can't afford their portion of it either. And that really is, if it's hurting me as a small business person, it's hurting all of Indiana and all of other states 
as well. And that seems like that's where we've got to focus our attention. Yeah, and we don't want to just be, you know, Indiana homeboys here and have an Indiana-focused show because this issue is probably going to be a bellwether for the rest of the country. Usually it's California, that is. Yeah. But with this issue, it may be us because there's such a disparity here in the, the state. But, you know, if 10 of us were in the room, I'll bet 10 of us could agree healthcare costs are out of control. Yes. But we would, we would struggle to get any kind of consensus as to why. We would all want to point fingers at each other and stand in a circle and sort of shoot. Uh, but the reality is it's hard to know. But uh, it feels like from listening to Michael Hicks that th- this issue of uh, for-profit versus uh, not-for-profit really has a great deal to do with some of the rising costs. And around the time this show airs, in early to mid-December, uh, he's going to have another study out. So you can look for that on his Ball State website. But thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of, of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners to find us. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing what doctors will not tell you about breast cancer. Uh, We'll be joined by Dr. Angela Lanfranchi, and she will be spectacular. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.